So we're on page 19 of Living Islam with Purpose by Sayyidina Sheikh Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah. May Allah preserve him and give him increase. Give him a long life of good deeds and worship and service. Amen. And help us to benefit from him. Amen. <coughs> preservation of religion. Yeah, so we talked about preservation of religion and I lost my mind on religious institutions and learning and like all that kind of stuff. That was fun. So <laughs> now we're on <laughs> preservation of self. So <coughs> where are we at in this whole thing? We're in, um, Dr. Omar is presenting in the paper, operational principles that can facilitate our understanding of the religion so that we can uh, do something useful as a community in the West and anywhere really if you wanted to use these five principles. So the first principle was? Um, sound reason. Close. No, no, it's about sound reason. I just don't know the title. Trusting reason. Trusting reason. reason. Yeah, there you go. Number two. Number two is um, respecting dissent. Respecting dissent. Number three. Societal Stressing societal obligations. Number four. Right yes. Priorities. Setting priorities. Very good. So under setting priorities, you started to talk about this idea of the breakdown of uh, things into categories of necessities and needs and how did he translate it? Com uh, compliment? Uh, it's on the next page. Compliments. So necessities and needs and compliments. So necessities being those things that are necessary for basically life and needs being those things that are they're not, life doesn't stop without them, but it's made exceptionally difficult without them. It's made more difficult. And so they facilitate life at some level. And compliments being things that are not in that category. This is a very important breakdown in general for how we think about life. You know, it's like when you're teaching kids and they say, uh, I need this. And you're like, no, you don't need that. You want that. This is, this is a compliment. <laughs> because it's a compliment it's not an actual need it's not going to make your life's not going to be hard if you don't have that cookie it's a compliment to your to your existence right but if it's a, if it's something you need then it's going to be like you know uh maybe like their shoes their f their toe is showing through the bottom to the front of their shoes and the sole is falling off and they're like baba i need new shoes you're like okay i guess that's a need to go to the payless is having their blowout sale <laughs> whatever closing sale so those are needs so now in the category of um, if we think about like a lot of our life in America is compliments and like so much of the advertising and everything that re it all revolves around compliments it's not really about the needs and the necessities for the most part uh, but there are definitely needs and necessities and they might actually shift at some level. 
Like you might have something. The example that I always think about is that in Southern California, having a car probably fluctuates between a need and a necessity, depending on your circumstances. And in some places, having a car is a compliment. Like in Cairo, having a car is a compliment. You could easily, I mean not easily, but you can get on the bus and go pretty much wherever you need to go. And you can get a taxi and go wherever you need to go, depending on your financial situation. But nonetheless, you can still get around. But in Southern California, if you don't have a car, oof, it's really tough. Depending, you know, there's some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's the case. The point is that needs and necessities and compliments can sometimes shift too. But the major, major necessities are the five major objectives of the of of Islam, which is the preservation of religion, preservation of self, of reason, children, and wealth. These are the five that uh, we're in right now. And the preservation of religion led us into no man's land. Preservation of self, he talks about here. I feel like we actually read these. Yeah, I think we went over them quickly. We went over them quickly, yeah. The first one is the one that I lost my mind on, yeah. Preservation of children. But the point is that he's bringing up here is that, and I think that we left off on, is that you take these five things. These five things are necessities of the religion. They're things that absolutely must be protected. And, you know, even if you think about kind of like the progression of the development of a community, it's going to have a connection to these things. So you say like, okay, a community of Muslims starts to develop in the West. What is the first thing that they're going to do? First thing that they're going to do is they're going to establish masajid. Right? Because they need somewhere to pray and they need somewhere to congregate and to preserve whatever they have of religion. And then they're probably going to build Islamic schools. Because they're going to have children and they're going to need to educate those children. They're going to probably hire some imams. Or they're going to hire some people that they call imams, uh, depending on the situation. And then <laughs> they'll become imams because they were called that by a board of volunteers that don't know what they're doing and hired them. And all of that will make them then imams. And, but that will be in the, in the objective of preserving the religion. Right, that will be the objective behind it. But then there will be other things that are necessary as well like publications and books and schools and universities and places for people to be employed and so on and so forth. Because when you apply the principle, which he talked about, that that which is necessary to fulfill an obligation is an obligation. So if we have to preserve these things, then whatever is necessary to preserve those things, we have to do as well. Which then lays out for the community what its platform is on social issues and how to think about social issues. Again, as we said before, very importantly, you can hold two flashlights in your hands and you can point them on the wall and the, and the light can overlap with each other and they cannot be coming from the same place. And although they are seemingly the same, they're not necessarily the same. So we can both agree that we should care about, for example, decent access to education as an issue that's related to the preservation of the mind preservation of reason and one person could their their flashlight that gets to that circle on the wall is some like I don't know any number of different philosophies that get them to believe that that matters and someone else could be holding a flashlight and pointing at the same place on the wall and their reason for that is that the present there has to be a preservation of reason and human beings are created with intellect and Allah has given us the capacity to think and so on and so forth so their flashlight is rooted in revelation their flashlight is rooted in a, in a worldview that relates to prophecy right 
And so uh, that's how you then uh, a platform can be developed from this perspective that these things relate to preservation of wealth, reason, whatever it might be. Preservation of children, marriage, family, caring for the disabled, aging, elderly, all of these things are in preservation of family as a whole, children and family, right? Uh, preventing abuse, uh, nutrition for children, like even in California, I think it's like one in four or one in five uh, children are uh, like have issues obtaining reasonable nutrition, you know? It's a crazy number, if you think about it, one in four. One in five-ish. It's a really high number. So that's an issue of the preservation of family. It's an issue of the preservation of the mind, by the way. And this is why, like, one of the things that I think about is that there is, like, all of this, for example, indicates to the importance of the eradication of extreme poverty. So in, in our worldview, we, we believe that some people will inevitably have more than other people, just the way that it is. But that doesn't mean that there needs to be extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is a different issue. Extreme poverty is related to greed. It's related to selfishness. It's related to an absence of a basic concern for other human beings. right? So extreme poverty, if you think about it, it affects all of these. Every one of these issues. Preservation of religion, the Prophet them used to seek refuge from al-kufri wal-faqr. Together, I used to, used to say, I seek refuge in you, Allah, from disbelief and from poverty. Because there's a, there's a close link between them. If someone's driven to a very serious state of poverty, it can challenge their belief. If, if they're in a very extreme state of poverty, it can challenge their safety. Obviously, it's very clear, right? People are driven into prostitution. People are driven into all kinds of things as a result of extreme poverty. Uh, people are driven into an, there's, a, there's a consequence on the mind person is not able to study they're not able to focus they're they're, their environment takes away from their capacity to learn their, maybe their nutrition makes it so that their mind doesn't work the same way right? they're, all of these things are affecting them the preservation of the family is being affected the family is being affected by extreme poverty because it's just like it's going to tear the family apart um, and of course wealth is being affected by it as well so these are things they're all all of them are playing towards uh, towards that reality so he talks about for example creation of lawful wealth its growth its protection think about for example like what happens think about stability and its consequence on on wealth acquisition over ex over extended periods of time you know some of these places where you some of these it's it's interesting to me when you find people who like maybe the place where they're from didn't face some extreme instability for some time usually the family has some property like people families and stuff are able to build wealth over time when there's stability maybe it might take a couple generations but eventually your family will have like a home maybe might have one or two things here and there might develop some land whatever but all of these things are then affected also by safety and security and everything else. So he says at the bottom of the page, like other like societal obligations, the five major objectives extend to other concerns through the previously mentioned principle. What is necessary to fulfill an obligation is an obligation. So he goes through that. As indicated above, Islamic law has three levels, necessities, needs, and complements. Necessities, the highest priority, are inseparably linked to the five major objectives. They are directly tied to the acquisition of indispensable benefits and the removal of critical harms. 
Necessities are matters without which individuals and societies cannot continue to exist. Okay. It is, it is a necessity in cold climates, for example, to have basic shelter with heat and hot water. As mentioned, the arena of necessities expands to include everything required to meet the five major objectives. Okay. Clarifying a community's necessities Clarifying what a community's necessities are makes it possible to determine the most urgent societal obligations. So now, the societal obligations, one of the important things to think about, that he's talking about here is, we have the individual obligations, we have the societal obligations. So when he lays out this philosophy and this idea of the societal obligations, part of the consequence of that, if you start really thinking about it, is it's going to be really hard to do all those things. Right to like really understand what is res what the community is responsible for, and what they need to work towards, and to have a vision for that, and to think about it, and to sit and be committed to it, and so on. It's going to take a lot. So inevitably, what's going to happen? There has to be priorities. This is what he's talking about in this section, which is a very important concept in life in general. A lot of times, people are like, "So how do you balance everything?" And usually, I tell them that I don't. That's how that's how I balance everything is by not doing everything. There's no way you can't balance everything. There's too many things to do, and there has to be some sort of understanding of priorities. And certain things are just they can't happen right now. That's all there is to it. So you set the priorities. When we understand the priorities, then we can start to figure out okay, what's a necessity, what's a need within the realm of the societal obligations, and then you can think about that as a community. Needs constitute the next level of priorities. They pertain to the acquisition of lesser benefits and prevention of lesser detriments. Needs are closely related to necessities because they buttress them and make it easier to meet them and keep them intact. Unlike necessities, needs have secondary importance and are dispensable. A society that fails to meet its secondary needs can survive, but the quality of life it provides will be less than satisfactory. It is a necessity to have basic shelter with heat and hot water in cold climates. It is a need to provide the shelter with important non-essential appliances like dishwashers. Right, so it's not essential. It'll make it easier, but it's not essential. Sometimes needs, I don't know if he's going to get into that here, but sometimes needs, I can't read, it's amazing how many times you can read something and still not remember what's in it. That uh, sometimes needs can be afflicting a great number of people in society and therefore kind of elevate themselves to uh, being in the category of a necessity, just as an intellectual concept. Like, الْحَاجَ الْعَامَّةُ نَزَّلْ مَنْزِينَةُ الْدُرُورَةِ That the, the, the overarching need is treated like a necessity. And there's, there's possible applications for that you might be able to think about. But in any case, compliments are number three. Compliments are also referred to as beautifications, tahsiniyat, and ornamentations, tazyiniyat. They pertain to minor benefits and detriments. And uh, they're similar to the relationship, like the relationship between compliments and needs are similar to the relationship between needs and necessities. You know, they're different levels and they, they support each other, but they're, they're not uh, essential. Compliments affect the quality of, in a sense, but you'll see kind of like what he's, compliments affect the quality of life by adorning it with elegance and sophistication. They also involve the removal of minor detriments like impoliteness. Compliments are the refinements of a civilized society. They manifest private, family, and social life in their most excellent forms. 
Basic shelter is a necessity. Important non-essential appliances such as dishwashers are a need. Attractive interior decoration and a pleasant view constitute a compliment. Now, what if you are uh, a people who used to have a beautiful civilization and you're under some sort of civilizational pressure and so you want to provide an alternative to the wider narrative as to how to live, how to engage with the world, so on and so forth. So now you might do something that is complementary, but in <coughs> a sense, it's actually nece necessary. Do you understand what I'm saying? So like you could say, for example, some of these mosques that are built in Turkey, even in, the, in the, like the current period, you could say that it's overkill. <laughs> like it's too much beauty and it's not a necessity to do it that way and you don't even need to do it that way. It's just a compliment and so on and so forth. But what it does for the psyche of the believers might actually be a necessity, might actually be necessary. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's just interesting to think about that. Like, and think about it in community spaces. You know, think about it in Masajid sometimes. Like someone could come in here and be like, well, you guys are running on donation money. Did you really need to buy this carpet? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a compliment. It's not a need. It's not a necessity. You don't need this carpet, right? And like that's true. But if people come in, and the place looks ugly, they're not going to want to come back. So the benefit of the that you're seeking in terms of preservation of religion is going to be lost because you're afraid of the compliment, right? So just uh, it's always interesting to complicate things a little bit. Because necessities are absolutely essential, they must always take top priority, and the best resources and greatest efforts must be expended to secure them. Now, at the same time, if we had bought, like, a super expensive rug, now you could ask, like, okay, why did you spend $1,000 on the rug when you could have spent 200 right? And, like, that $800 could have, I don't know, hired someone to do this or that or whatever. Why did you... I get it, you wanted to build a nice masjid, but did you really need the $100,000 chandelier? Because that $100,000 could have, like, like, two people could have, like, you could have, if you're not in Southern California, employed a youth, w someone to work with the youth in the community for two years for the cost of your chandelier. You know, like, what's, so, you know, anyways, you get it. As we have seen, necessities are the mainstay of society. Needs support necessities, and compliments support needs. Therefore, the attempt to meet needs must not be allowed to stand in the way of meeting necessities, and compliments must not be emphasized to the exclusion of needs. Setting priorities in Islamic law means ordering necessities, needs, and compliments so that the lower priorities support and do not work against the higher ones. Okay. <coughs> in ideal situations, they exist side by side, but the realities of life and the nature of community often make it impossible to do all of them. So there must be some level of trade-off. So we have to make sure that if there is a trade-off, we trade off the right thing and not the wrong thing. Human activities rarely occur without the potential for bringing about simultaneous benefits and harms. So we mentioned that as well. That Anizu uh, ibn Abd al-Salam, rahimahullah, mentions that. That it's very rare that something that you're facing will be purely beneficial or purely harmful. It's very rare. Usually there's some sort of mix in it. And if there's a mix, we have to try to figure out 
where the um, what the what the higher side is, right? Uh, he says, driving somewhere quickly may be beneficial, but it is forbidden in Islamic law if it involves speeding and risking a car accident. The supposed benefits of speeding do not outweigh the potential harms of an accident. But when potential benefits are greater than possible harms, the act is permissible and in some cases recommended or obligatory. When an ambulance speeds to the hospital to save the life of someone in critical condition, it runs the risk of an accident. But the benefit of saving the patient's life greatly outweighs the detriment of a possible accident. Assuming the ambulance has like emergency lights on it you don't get to be the ambulance in most cases but you know these are it's interesting to think about sometimes there is no way to avoid a greater harm except by incurring a lesser one and there may be no way to avoid a greater prohibition except by doing a lesser one when this is the case it becomes allowable and sometimes obligatory to choose the course of action that requires doing the lesser harm or the lesser prohibition despite the fact that neither is allowed okay it's an interesting concept right so one of the things about the fiqh is that there's two levels of it. The, the higher level is like the general ruling and perspective on something. And the lower level of it is its particular application to a certain case. So what he says here, um, where did it go? Eating carrion is detrimental to the health and strictly forbidden in Islamic law, eating a dead animal. But starvation is a greater harm and a greater prohibition. Therefore... The Qur'an directs the starving person to eat carrion or similar unclean substances to stay alive if there is nothing clean and permissible to eat. So now you're in a situation, generally speaking, you don't eat a dead animal. Like an animal that was already dead when you found it. It wasn't slaughtered or anything, it was just dead. Uh, you don't eat it. But now the person's starving. So what's the ruling for them to eat that animal? It's obligatory. They have to eat it. They have to eat it. Those are cases are not always the same, by the way. So, like, uh, that's not the same as the case of someone who is in front of a tyrant, and if they don't say that they don't believe, the tyrant will kill them. In this case, they don't have to say that they don't believe. They're allowed to die? They're allowed to die. They would die an honorable death if they were to choose to say, you know, like, no, I'm not going to say I disbelieve, you can kill me And they get killed, that's okay It's actually, it's the azima The rukhsa is like The the standard Like the, I don't know how to translate those words Anyways, you can take that position <laughs> You could say otherwise But, and actually they say like Some people kind of like Have to take the hard position Not everyone can be like No, I don't believe And the whole thing just kind of like goes away Some people have to stay and and uh, if they did, you know, they die the death of the shaheed. May Allah give all of us good endings. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. The phenomenon of Muslim conferences and conventions in the U.S. and Canada offers an example of various benefits and detriments and how they may be ranked by priority. Organizing such gatherings constitutes a priority because they serve necessities, such as helping to preserve the religion and develop the community. They fulfill many other individual and community needs, such as providing access to scholars and new ideas. They provide for numerous compliments, such as meeting friends. Like most large gatherings, however, the conferences also fall short of expectations in certain regards. They may not be well organized, they may fail to give fair representation to all ethnic groups, and their programs may be superficial and repetitive. As a rule, however, the benefits of the conferences outweigh their detriments, and they remain a community priority and an important social societal obligation. This is an interesting point, right? So if our valid critiques 
of things lead to their destruction, we should think about that. Like, what is going to be left afterwards? And sometimes it really feels like that. Sometimes it really feels like no matter what you do, someone's going to cut your legs off. And like, what is the point of the whole thing? You might as well just get some sheep and go on a mountain. I think uh, on Eid of Adha, because of some people's harshness, uh, we've actually left some sunnahs due to it. Hmm. So like, um, I think some people are not comfortable doing group vicar hmm. on Eid. Because it's so like on Eid. Three hundred and sixty-four days. You're told not to. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And another one is uh, no one tells each other, "May Allah accept your your prayer after anymore." Mm. Even though that's the actual like source of you know mm. for mm. that ruling. So it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah well, Allah help us, liberate us from ourselves. So uh, yes. That's what you're supposed to do in basketball. Yeah. I bet they were losing. No, I'm just kidding. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing we need yeah, is egos gone wild. Wise, I was watching like criticism versus compliment, <laughs> and it was imbalanced on both sides. Like it yeah. was too much criticism here and too much yeah. ego, you know. So, but I was just watching like. Everyone should just watch the game and not say anything. Yeah. Just stand, watch the just game. Cultural, some of it too. It was, a, it was that was the biggest culture shock for him to go from playing on a Muslim league mm. to a Christian league, and he was the Muslim kid on the Christian league. And everybody made sure they complimented him the most, even mm. though he wasn't the best mm. player. Mm. And I, w- I, w- I, I would always say on the, the sidelines, on the sidelines, like if, if this was the opposite, and we had a Christian kid or a Jewish kid at the Muslim school playing at our school, would our parents be as? I think they would. No, we're Hopefully, pretty, we're they would. I think I think they would. We're pretty nice to the the kid that's. You're right. You're right. But it was just culturally, I felt like those two years, I was in this la-la land of like, wow, they just think everything their kids do is fabulous. <laughs> like, every little thing. I don't I mean, I, I think that's even, like, that was an American culture 15 years ago. Yeah. Even American culture, like, wasn't, it wasn't like that. No. 20 years, yeah. when I grew up playing sports, it wasn't no. like that. Amer- Muslims, non-Muslims, everybody was the same. Exactly. You get roasted. <laughs> yeah, like, people were crazy. Yeah. yeah. Coaches are making kids cry, and they're like eight. That's part of sports. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes, yeah, sure. um, From like a community organizing perspective, like yeah. um, 
I've had conversations with um, like people who've been doing that work for like years, and one thing that they all mention is like in the Muslim community, we're a lot more critical. Yeah. Um, they'll notice that, and also in like the trans community, they're they're a lot more critical, and people yeah. are willing to like cut each other's legs off or whatever. Yeah. Um, in communities where like there's, or like in the black community and stuff, where there's a lot more. Uh, systemic oppression um, mm. versus in some communities. So maybe maybe that might be. A I mean, it was a definitely white privilege yeah, school. Yeah. So maybe. But I was watching how they build the the they the CEOs of this world. Like I was watching these little boys, and how these parents mm. these are the kids <laughs> who are going to be like you know owning everything. Like I I was just watching it happen. And yeah, that's another that's one extreme. But I also. I think the other, like the overcriticalness, like yeah. there has to be some balance, you know. Yeah, the, the toxicity, I think yeah. it comes to a point where it becomes toxic mm-hmm. um, and the criticism isn't healthy. Um, mm-hmm. And that might just be American, uh, not, not, I don't want to say an American thing, but more of like a, a Muslim community within the cultural context that we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in the end, the point is that what is your end game? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, we, we bring that question up over and over and over again, right? What is your end game? Okay, you critiqued everything to death. Now, like, your kids have no school to go to and you have no conference to take them to and, like, nobody wants to do anything and nobody donates to anything and all of it is destroyed because you critiqued everything until it was gone. So, like, now now what's left, you know? Yeah, sometimes they're valid. And, you know, but, like, sometimes they're not really that important. Yes. Uh, they remain a community priority and an important societal obligation. But this is, you know, pre... This was what year? 2000... What did we say last time? Seven. 2007. Pre... When was YouTube? I think it was around that time. Smartphones probably around that time. They weren't for us, but... For us, smartphones were 2012, but... I don't know. It's an interesting question, right? Because things have changed significantly, and they're not the same as they used to be. You go to these conferences, it's not the same. We have some other things, too. Now. We yeah. have a lot of replacements now. Yeah. Like retreats, for example. <laughs> yeah. And people don't, there's, you don't see as many people going to them. It's not the same. Like, I when I was in college, if you wanted to hear someone, you have to go hear them. Mm-hmm. Or you have to get a tape out of, like, someone's trunk. They got they got copied and like you got it you got the CD or you went to some random website that was sh- super shady and they had all these MP3s on it and you could download it you know but like it wasn't uh, it wasn't like that if you wanted to hear like Imam Zaid you have to figure out where Imam Zaid is speaking and you have to go there mm-hmm. and it wasn't like you just go on YouTube and find out everything they've said over the last ten years or yeah, like yeah. everything I listened to was these random like every CDs every from people's. Almost every scholar is part of an institution now. Like, it's, if you want to get to them, it's pretty easy to get to them. Like, you just figure out where they're teaching. Yeah, but now you don't even have to do that. You just go on YouTube and you find them, and you go on Facebook and you find them, and you you go to WhatsApp. <laughs> 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 the community affords you WhatsApp. Everything on WhatsApp. Yeah, of course it's. I mean, uh, um, it's different. It's different, but the point is you still have access. Like, you wouldn't know what well-known, like, speakers and thinkers in America are thinking unless you got their tape. Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really know. So, like, when they're presenting ideas and stuff, it was a whole different engagement with ideas. Uh, anyways, 
Misplaced priorities are a common stumbling block in the American Muslim community. Often they grow out of simple unawareness that priorities are part a part of the Islamic religion. It's very common, actually, you see this. Some people, they deal with everything in the religion like it's the same. Every obligation is the same. Every prohibition is the same. Not even that. Every obligation and recommended act, they're all in the same camp. And they're all equal. And everything that's disliked or prohibited is all in the same camp and they're all equal. And there's no concept of, of differentiating between priorities. In some cases, they result from the transfer of old world ways to the West without evaluating their utility in a new context. <coughs> the allegation that speaking frankly about the community's problems is shameful or constitutes an attack upon, Islam, attack upon Islam is deeply rooted in old world notions of shame and honor. Another cultural transfer is the emphasis that some communities place on training children in the virtuous act of memorizing the Qur'an, yet with little or no concern for teaching them Arabic and basic commentary so that they can benefit fully from what they memorize. Some imams do address the previously mentioned issue of Muslim-owned liquor stores in the inner cities. Others may <coughs> rail against false priorities like the supposed evils of Halloween and women wearing fingernail polish, but avoid mentioning the Muslim-owned liquor businesses despite the fact that some of their biggest proprietors may be sitting before them in the congregation. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. oh, God. Mic drop. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's hard. Yeah, that's good. That was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> inspired. It's pretty good, mashallah. Don't preserve him. But I think the liquor stores is a good, like that's a really, really good example of a foundation in culture versus film. Hmm. What do you mean? Who has the position of dominance mm -hmm. in our psyche and in our mind and in our perspective on how we look at the world and everything else? Is is Islam ghalib or is it maghlub? Is it on top or is it? Is it internal or external? What do you mean? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that we just. I give you an example. Never mind, I shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> you want to stop the recording? <laughs> <laughs> the internal, I think I may have already said it, so it doesn't really matter, but the, I, I think some a good amount of it is internal. Like, we, we just, deep down inside, we don't believe that our religion is adequate. Mm -hmm. Deep down inside. So, I'll just like, you know, do what everyone else does and slap a little bit of icing on the top of my my cake but uh, you know i'll just eat their cake because their cake worked it's like the the unspoken same assumptions as uh, as like the uh the whole ottoman turk revolution thing you know like the west th th look at us we're backwards in the west they figured it out so we need to get rid of all this stuff and you know we're gonna outlaw turbans we're gonna I sent some of the, the video to some of you, you should watch <coughs> it, you know, the YouTube documentary on Saeed Nursi, Rahimahullah, mm -hmm. called Free Man. It's whole, the whole thing is on YouTube. It's like two and a half hours. It's, like, it's not a documentary, sorry. It's like a drama movie. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, like, it's, it's when you think about Turkey, it's really interesting. 
I mean, just a hundred years ago, all of the ulama were hanging off the bridges by their turbans. Right? Like, you could not wear a turban. And that was what they, you know, Said Nursi, that was one of the scenes in the, in the, in the movie. Is that they, he's like getting away with wearing this turban in exile and they have to send him to a different town. So like, we're sorry we can't send you with that turban on your head. You know, you have to put a western hat on. And he's like, he just looks at him and he says, the only way this turban is coming off my head is with my head. He's <laughs> 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 like, you can <laughs> take it if you want, but it's not coming off my head. And uh, these are, those are like, you know. But it was because that, that's what left us backwards. We wore turbans on our heads, so... We need to change our turbans, and we the clothes we wore doesn't isn't the clo- clothes of people who matter in the world, and the way that we do things isn't the way of people who matter in the world. So we're just going to adopt everyone else's way, and that's really sad. <coughs> Not only for us, it's really sad actually for everyone, because that's that's you know Islam is the last is the last leg of the prophetic way of living in the world. It's it's not just a loss for us; it's a loss for everyone. Yeah. Can we like balance that with like the fact that like we're American? Just wear a turban. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, like we're Americans. Though. Yeah. Like, wear a Jude hat. Wear a Jude hat. How do you balance it? Huh? That's part of what we have to figure out. But uh, it's weird, like reading uh, the book of. Uh, <coughs> Islamic matters. He's like bringing up, oh, imitating the like the Westerners. I'm like, I'm a Westerner, mm-hmm. <laughs> so like it's not imitating to me. Like mm-hmm. it's where I'm from, right? You know, so like how much do we keep? And how much do we uh, don't keep? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big conversation, right? Mm-hmm. But But, but what are the remnants? What if you're a white American? Yeah, What's the remnant? So you find like the pillars of like Islam that you shouldn't. It's like your wedding ring example. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh, if you're if you're if you're truly American then you don't have to follow someone else's definition of what it means to be American. Yeah, you can, you can have some level of, and, and like Dr. Jackson always says, that, you know, that's, pa- that's part of, you know, we have to figure that out. The Nation of Islam did a good job of producing culture that was still American but very Islamic. Bow ties. Dresses, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, but the point is, like, when you, when you so here's the example that I was going to give. Someone was saying, I told you guys about this conversation between Colbert and uh, what's his name, Anderson, Anderson Cooper. So some people commented on that. So Colbert and Anderson Cooper had a Anderson Cooper asked him basically like Colbert had this statement basically along the lines of like any any uh, punishment from God is actually good or something something along those lines. And Anderson Cooper asked him like, do you really believe that? And he said yes. And then. So we were saying like, well, how come we can't have any Muslims that talk like this and so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. So it's very simple. The Muslims are too worried about deciding whether or not they actually believe in their religion. 
to be able to engage like that. <laughs> you know, like as long if you just decide, okay, I believe in my religion, you're going to figure out how to speak about things in English and to think about things and to position it within the framework of the cultural and intellectual experience that you live in and so on and so forth. But you have to decide that you believe in it. If you haven't decided whether or not you believe in it, then, you know, that's its own issue. Okay. Yes. Coming to the American part. So I think that the challenge in what is American and what we keep or we don't keep, I think, has to do with America being such a baby. And also that if we were to study American context to different cultures, not religions, like <coughs> pieces of clothing or language or... America is so evolving, and it's not a, um, like, you know, the value-based society versus the societies based on values. It's constant, it's a constant change from when I was 5 to 15 to 20. So, in our deciding what we're going to adopt and not adopt, um, that's where your Islam mm -hmm. is so important, because I don't think America knows who it is yet. Like, you know, they constantly kind of see what's, it, besides Muslims, just they're not sure of where they stand with what. So imagine, you know, a religious community, whether you're American, Catholic, Jewish, trying to be American Catholic or American Jew or American Muslim. America's constantly evolving and their society and their worldview <coughs> doesn't, doesn't have like a foundation that this is who we are and this is how we're, I think it's because it's still a new evolving um, country and because of the um, the powers that are in control of mm. changing the values constantly. Mm. I feel like in um. a very short amount of time things have changed. From like yeah, 20 years that I would agree change. with. Yeah, but there's a lot of change. They didn't change as fast for a long period before that. Yeah, and yeah. this last era, postmodern era, I think the changes are happening so fast. Very fast. That if we were to just keep changing with them, then you would lose yourself all the time. I mm. feel like you'd have to reinvent yourself every year, mm. almost. Yeah. yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I don't think so. I don't think that's just America. There's a global monoculture. <coughs> we need what? More Muslim anthropologists. Mm -hmm. I think it would be game-changing. May Allah give them fulfilling incomes. <laughs> <laughs> They might be. Yeah. Because they study exactly yeah. everything that you just said. Yeah. So why aren't Muslims involved in it? Why aren't we in the field? Why are we encouraging our children to be doctors? All, all of our all of our women should go into anthropology because yes. they're not responsible for paying for rent. <laughs> and then all of the men will have to go into engineering and medicine. Otherwise, there's no hope for living in Southern California. <laughs> Yeah, the brutal realities of rent. <coughs> yeah, it should be a musical. Yeah, let's call it rent. I mean, like a bad, a bad, bad drama, you know. They have one. It's called rent. Oh my God. They literally have one. It's called rent. I was gonna call it for a Yeah, alhamdulillah. But yeah, I mean, these areas, they, you, you know, that's how you begin to engage with these things. But generally speaking, there's, there's, there's people doing things. A lot of times it's that we don't find them or we don't hear about them or, you know. Uh, 
What is that rule that they say? I think like Adam and uh, Adam and Wujud la yani Adam and Wujudan or something like that or the opposite or something like basically just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. In English you say the same thing, right? It's like we said before that oftentimes people will be like, How are the scholars are not talking about anything and this and that and so you're like, So what what is it that you have you're worried about? They're like organ donation. I'm like, Okay, go search for it. <laughs> like literally for the last fifty years it's been discussed, you know. <laughs> And there were like conferences and international like declarations and all, like it's not that it's not you just didn't know and you assumed that it meant that it didn't exist. Right? So yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a part of like generally speaking on everything. It's it's good to do research because uh, sometimes things are out there. You know, that's what people are like. Why don't you write more? I'm like, do you know how many things have been written? <laughs> is it really necessary for me to write? I mean, like, look at this. How many people sit and read? Like, Dr. Omar wrote this, and Dr. Jackson wrote that, and so on and so forth. And, like, all these ulama in the past wrote the things that they wrote, and, like, I need to rewrite, I don't know, like, the same stuff again? Well, we just need to read it. We can't start the next one because then we're just not going to finish, so we might as well just stop on Operational Principle 5. It's, uh, like, there's only a few minutes left, so I don't think we should start. So, um... Any other like comments or anything?